What's your mom? A working mom. And what did she write? The working the mom. The working mom blueprint. blueprint. And what should they do? Go buy, buy it today. The Working Mom Blueprint is now available wherever books are sold. Go grab it for yourself, for a friend, for a sister, for a colleague, so we can help working moms, all moms, to thrive, not just survive on their motherhood journey. Welcome to the Modern Mommy Dog Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. And welcome back to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast. Today, I have Dr. Amy Moore, who is a cognitive psychologist and research director for Learning RX, and is also host of the Brainy Moms podcast. And I also have with me Kim Hansen, who is the CEO of Learning RX. And today, we are chatting about learning with our kids, about learning difficulties, about optimizing learning for our kids. And so I'm excited to to have this episode because we focus a lot on the podcast on moms and, and thriving for moms. And of course, we want that to be the core focus of what we do. But I also know so many moms out there, if they're having kids who are struggling with learning, that that can really take over and become very overwhelming. And so we want to support those mamas too. And we know that all kids learn differently. And so it's important to understand learning. So welcome to the show. Good to be here. So I would love first and foremost to kind of hear the journey of Learning Rx and kind of why it exists. Like what's the problem that Learning Rx is trying to solve? Yeah, so I can answer that since uh, my dad is actually the founder of Learning Rx. And uh, back in the early 70s, um, he was starting his practice and he always had this question that was kind of itching him. And that was, you know, how could you have a child that is smart but has trouble reading. They struggle to read. They don't understand what they've read. And that always just really puzzled him. And so he kind of sought out on a journey. He had a brother who is a psychologist and he was just always very interested in how kids learn. And he was starting a family of his own. (laughs) Um, I'm the oldest of five kids. And he wanted to make sure that we would have every opportunity to learn better, you know, to, to, to be a good learner and, uh, that, that reading and learning would never be hard for us if he could help it. And so that's kind of the journey that he started. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. 
And so she was very into, uh, you know, how, how kids learn. And uh, he kind of just clamped onto that. And uh, he discovered that there are seven underlying skills that are really important to how you learn. And, uh, and that's kind of what learning RX is based off of is uh, those seven skills and making sure that they're strong. Okay, so now I need to know what the seven skills are. <laughs> You're leaving me hanging. <laughs> yeah, so those seven skills are things like uh, visual processing, how you picture things in your head. So kind of creating the movie as you're reading. Uh, things like attention and memory. And so there's uh, two kinds of memory. Uh, your long-term memory, being able to retrieve information, but then also working memory, being able to hold information long enough so you can solve something. Um, also, uh, processing speed, auditory processing, which is being able to blend, segment, and analyze sounds, uh, a very important skill for when you're learning to read. And logic and reasoning, I'm not sure if I hit all of them. <laughs> you did. I think I did. <laughs> Yeah. Working memory. <laughs> yeah. Working memory. Okay. So tell me, um, and maybe this is a question for Dr. Moore. Tell me, I feel like we're talking about learning differences so much more than people used to in the past. We have a greater recognition, but also I feel like there are more and more kids who seem to end up with a diagnosis of learning differences or a learning disorder within my clinical practice. So is it that we're just more aware or that there's more of it or both? So I would say both. We've learned a lot um, in the last two decades about uh, learning differences, and we've been able to kind of apply those um, to symptoms that make up the pathology that we're busy diagnosing, right? Um, and then I think that because the American school system has shifted in opposite directions, swinging a pendulum back and forth in terms of how we're approaching curriculum and instruction, that plays a role in it as well. Um, we have to look at the environment and toxins um, that our children are being exposed to in, in food, in water, in the air. So I think that, I mean, when you look at epigenetics, there are obviously going to be some underlying propensities um, for pathology there as well. But the bottom line is that um, everyone has one, two, or three cognitive skills that just aren't strong enough yet, right? And if we can optimize the performance in those skills, um, then we can solve a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the classroom. And so when you look at the Cattell-Horn-Carroll theory of cognition, which is the most widely recognized theory of intelligence, right? It's the basis for every single, most every IQ test on the market, right? If you look at that and it, it tells us how complex cognition is, right? There are, you know, 18 broad cognitive abilities over 90 narrow cognitive abilities that all are kind of distilled down into those seven core areas that Kim talked about. And so if you can identify where, where the cognitive skills aren't strong enough yet, then you can remediate those skills. And then that has applicability in the classroom and at home and behaviorally and, 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 right? Yeah. So, right. 
That makes a ton of sense to me. And I want to get to how you identify which skills are there, which skills need improving upon. And also then what do you do to remediate them? I want to take me back though, to the factors that influence it. Of course, there's always like nature and nurture, right? Mm -hmm. We know that your genetic propensities, what's happened in your own family, maybe your mom had some learning differences as well, or your dad, you do too. What are the environmental factors though, that parents can influence in the home to make it so kids have the best chance possible at learning? Like, are there certain things that make it so it's more difficult to learn? I'm thinking about things like overexposure to screens or, you know, being distractible, not having time to sit and be quiet. Are there some things within the research that are very, very clear that parents should be doing to optimize things at home in their environment for their kids? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, lack of physical activity is the number one issue that we see. And so if you can, um, create opportunities um, for physical activity for your children, then the, the benefits to the brain are immeasurable. And so we know from a neuroscience perspective that, that aerobic activity is what increases BDNF, which is the fertilizer for, you know, for the brain, what helps it grow. And so aerobic activity is what releases that fertilizer. It's like miracle grow for the brain. And so if we don't encourage our children to get out and move, then we're fighting against that opportunity, right? We're completely giving up the opportunity to help them optimize brain function that way as well. Um, when we look at the standard American diet right now, it's awful, it's awful. And so we eat so much sugar and sugar inflames the body. And if your body's inflamed, then your brain is inflamed, right? So we call sugar neuroinflammatory. And so if we can reduce the amount of sugar, uh, especially refined sugar that we're exposing our children to in their diets, again, we have the opportunity to seriously optimize their brain function. Another thing you can do too, is just read to your kids mm. um, and not just picture books. Um, like if you think back like in the 70s is when picture books became a huge thing, right? And But if you look at a, the generation before, they would listen to the radio and they didn't have t television and they didn't have picture books. And so they have a lot better visual processing. They're able to create movies in their head better than kids from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, because we had all the pictures in front of us all of the time. No one read us a chapter book. So there are even things like that. You can even, uh, you know, when you have a, a small child, teach them sounds, not letter names, so that they can do a sound decode approach. Absolutely. What's a sound decode approach? Tell me, I need to know that. I feel they're not going to be familiar with that. What does that mean? So a sound decode approach, we learn how to talk before we learn how to read. And, uh, and it can be confusing uh, for kids when you're looking at different sounds, like uh, uh, just to teach them the sound b, 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 like in boy, instead of b, because b is actually two sounds. So that's kind of the difference. And so a sound decode approach so that it just makes sense to them. So it's better just to point to something, you know what I mean? Ah, ah, apple, than to say a. <laughs> 
right. I, and, I a, like and a is the code is what she's saying. So right. you're, the idea is that you have to learn how to manipulate the sounds in the language, but then attach them to the code that represents those sounds. Later, so yeah. The, right. The problem is that many curricula um, for reading start with the letters or the code where the sound is the primary unit. I, yeah, I understand. So instead of it being that you're talking about B, which sounds different than the actual sound that it makes when you're saying the word, you got to start with the sound that it makes when you're saying the word. So yes. that's helpful. Yeah. You know, and I love this, um, this idea about reading to your kids, but not having it be the picture books. I find that in my office, parents get really hung up on this idea of I need to be constantly stimulating my kids with like showing them books, showing them flashcards, showing them things like the little, little kids, the babies, like a two week old, you know, with these black and white flashcards. And I don't think that's bad necessarily to use some of those some of the time, but um, I am always really encouraging my families. Like, how about you just read your book? out loud to your baby so they hear language how about you spend some time where you're not reading at all but you're just talking to your baby and you're just looking at them in the eyes and they're watching your facial expressions because our babies learn from that too when we have a phone in front of our faces and our babies are trying to learn emotions and to learn communication it's much more difficult for them so um Putting down your phone and, you know, unless you're reading like a steamy romance novel, uh, <laughs> reading, reading some of your adult books with your kids in, your, in the room, with your baby in the room, with your toddler in the room, it's a great, a great way for them to learn language. Absolutely. And I think you hit on something else as well, that when, when we as parents have our faces in our phones or our iPads or even on our laptops all day, then we're minimizing the connection that we're making socially and emotionally with our children. And when we are not socially and emotionally connected, then our brains don't develop properly either, right? I mean, we're missing, we're missing the, the development of emotion regulation. And when we can't regulate our emotions, we can't learn because what happens in the brain is the part of the brain that regulates emotions, the amygdala, will hijack the prefrontal cortex, which is what does our thinking and learning. And if your brain is hijacked by dysregulated emotions, because you haven't been able to, you haven't learned how to regulate them through basic connections with other human beings, it's a roadblock to learning. It is time to run, not walk, to your bookstore or have your fingers do whatever is the equivalent of running to the Amazon store, to online, to purchase our new book. It's called The Working Mom Blueprint, Winning at Parenting Without Losing Yourself. It is a labor of love. I'm so excited to deliver this book baby to you and to help you really feel like you are winning at parenting without losing yourself, mama. If you want to also check it out at the library, it's there, borrow it from a friend. However, I just want you to get this solid information so you can start thriving, not just surviving in motherhood. Yeah. And this is one of those really hard things, I think, for parents to understand what to do practically, right? Are there some, I, I know for myself, I have to lock my phone in a drawer. Like I have to put it in a drawer <laughs> so that I'm not looking at it and getting notifications. Because as you can imagine, and I'm sure this is true for, for both of you, right? There's always notifications coming in, emails coming in. So 
the trick that I have found has really been to hide it under a pillow, put it in a different room, turn it off completely, put it in a drawer so that I have pockets of time that I have intentionally said, this will not be a moment that the phone or that screens are part of my life. I'm going to intentionally for an hour or two, turn it off completely and the kids won't have screens too. Are there other tactics either of you have used to make screens less of a barrier to learning between you and your kids? Well, I think that you have to establish no phone zones. And so our dining room table is a no phone zone um, because the connections that you can make dining room table are incredible over dinner, um, over breakfast, um, you know, what was, what was something you learned today that you didn't know yesterday? I mean, you can have those conversations that you can't when everybody's faces is in a phone. Kim is really good with tips like that. So I bet she's got uh, some great ones to share. Uh, I don't know. The thing that comes to mind is uh, don't take it on date night. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes. 100%. I, I, I mean, I think that's modeling too, right? Like it's the modeling in between the parents, the communication as well. Um, yeah. My husband and I have that rule or we say at least like you have like two minutes at the start of date night to get whatever you need to get done, figure it out with the, with the nanny, you know, and then you put that on, like, do not disturb, tell the nanny, like, I will be back in 30 minutes, you know, <laughs> you're going to need me so that there is just like, a time where you're actually looking in each other's eyes, having that attunement, right, with each other. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we talked about some environmental things. And then now I would love to get into how you decide, how you determine what are the strengths or the learning strengths that a child has and what are the areas that they need to improve upon or optimize significantly in order to learn well. So assessment. Um, we, we actually, in our practices, we use gold standard, uh, cognitive assessments and, um, that actually measure functioning in those key areas that Kim talked about. And then we also survey parents on the behaviors that they see at home and what the teachers are reporting in the classroom as well. So we can kind of correlate what behaviors are you seeing, you know, what deficits are you seeing in terms of home and classroom? And then we can compare that to um, what we've quantified um, on those tests of working in long-term memory, visual and auditory processing, attention, reasoning, and processing speed skills. That's the easiest way to determine it. Mm -hmm. And then, okay. And then tell me, and I want to hear specifically with learning RX, what you do to address them, because I think the thought that's always in the back of my mind as a pediatrician or as a consumer is like, how is this any different from the other programs that are out there? And what I have loved about talking with you all and looking at your, your research and what you have online is that it seems to me, it appears to me that what you're doing is very, very research-based, that you're really trying to make it based on science versus based off of what sounds pretty good <laughs> or what, you know, like, like that it seems like it's very, very legitimate. So tell me about kind of the secret sauce behind learning RX and what you do to approach these issues that kids have. So there are two things that are important um, differentiators between us and most other programs. Uh, one is, is that most parents don't know this. Most people don't know this, but there's two parts to SMART. There's what you know, 
And so that's kind of like your file cabinet. That's what the school's job is. That's also what tutoring is. Tutoring is reteaching uh, uh, information and hoping it sticks this time. And so you have that academic side, but then you have the processing side. We're not really on that academic side. A little bit we play in it, but really our whole goal is to work on the processing side. So it's those seven underlying skills um, and we strengthen those. So it's skill, it's not knowledge. Um, and so that's how we're different. The other way that we're very different is that you can find some programs that are narrowly focused on maybe just memory or maybe just auditory processing, but we're comprehensive. We work on all seven and a lot of times we're working on more than one skill at a time. Um, and that's the way you uh, need to have those skills in real life. You know, you're not just in a vacuum and you just need memory to do that, to do a lot of uh, uh, things that you're doing. You need to have, you know, more than one skill. That makes a lot of sense to me that they're integrated, right? They don't exist in silos, but they exist mm -hmm. together and that one might be needed for the other one to work, that type of thing. And then do you have specialists within each area or is there a curriculum? How is it that you address then the specific areas that need honing? Yeah, so there is a curriculum. We have over a hundred training tasks and each of those tasks is sequenced um, in order of difficulty and complexity. So 10 to 12 different variations of those hundred tasks. So really we have about a thousand different ways um, of training those cognitive skills. And so it is 126 page curriculum and um, our cognitive trainers are trained in how to deliver it, but it's customized because you know, once we run assessments, we find out you know, which skills need the most work. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on the skills that you already have functioning well, right? Even though that's more fun, <laughs> right? we're going to spend the majority of the time working on those skills that need strengthening. And, yeah. and each task is either paced with a metronome or with a stopwatch. And that does a couple of things. It helps make the skills more automatic. It prevents um, you from taking a cognitive break. We like to call it creating a mental sweat. Mm. And it keeps the sessions intense. Um, remember, I talked about the importance of aerobic activity for releasing BDNF. Well, you need that same intensity in cognitive training as well. And so if you think about it as working out with a cognitive trainer is kind of like working out with a personal fitness trainer in the gym, you know, who pushes you to strengthen those individual muscle groups. You aren't just going to work on biceps with your personal trainer, right? Otherwise you're going to look lopsided. And so um, it's the same idea that your cognitive trainer helps discover, you know, your, the areas that you need the most strengthening in. And, and we only so work on what you can't do. If you can do something, then we move on and we find the can't and we turn that into a can. And it almost sounds like it's like a hit workout. It sounds like you're doing like very intense energy burst with the metronome and the stopwatch. And then I'm assuming you take a break and then like very intense work with the metronome and the stopwatch. Is that accurate? So there's not much of a break. So these are 60 to 90 minute training sessions, you know, three or four days a week. And um, the transition between tasks is rapid. 
Um, because we don't want you to sit back, breathe. No, we're going to push you. And so, and one of the things that differentiates that model from a brain training uh, app or program is that a brain training app on your computer, you typically will choose those activities that you like the most, right? Because they're already easy for you. Um, and when you get to the point of frustration, what do you do? You turn it off or shut your computer screen down. The beauty of having a human trainer is that they can provide motivation. They can monitor your frustration level, pull back a little bit, let you experience some success, push you a little bit further. And so working with a personal cognitive trainer, you know, really develops that self-efficacy for learning. Tell me about the research behind this way of doing it. Yeah, our research is really exciting. So we look at quantitative outcomes, which means we measure pre and post test results um, in between, you know, before and after cognitive training. And we um, find statistically significant changes in all of the constructs that we measure, regardless of the age group that we look at and across diagnostic categories that we've researched. And um, we also look at qualitative changes. And so that's the real life change that we see, right? And so the number one uh, real life change that we see in every single research study is increasing confidence. Um, we see things like improved self-discipline, better cooperative behaviors, um, enjoyment of school again, um, improved mood, improved outlook, even better driving ability we have found in, uh, in some research we've done with adults. But then we've also used functional MRI to look at changes in the brain um, before and after cognitive training. And those are beautiful. I mean, we've seen you know, increased connectivity. We've seen normalizing of the default mode network. We've seen um, increased white matter integrity and overall global efficiency of the brain using functional MRI. So it's really an exciting field to be in um, because yeah. those results just, you know, it's this convergence of evidence. You know, you, you're seeing it from these multiple types of, you know, tests and surveys and reports and different types of, you know, imaging. And when that all kind of converges and continues to say the same thing, something is happening here. And so it's really exciting. Okay. So another question is coming up for me because as you're talking about it, I'm thinking, I want to do learning RX. <laughs> I want to get my functional MRI to look even better. So is this like, would you say this is for every kid? Like every kid could benefit from it? Or do you feel like it's really the kids that have significant deficits that see the biggest improvements. I'm, I'm trying to think about like who, who should really be looking for this as a solution that for the money, you know, that they're going to pay to invest sure. in this, that it would create a big enough difference to see outcomes within their confidence, within their functional MRI, and then also potentially in their academic performance or in their ability to enjoy school. Yeah. So, um, Changes on functional MRI are more dramatic in people who have the biggest deficits, right? And we don't use those clinically, right? We use those just in research. But from a day-to-day -day perspective, everyone can benefit from cognitive training, everyone. And so while, yes, about 30% of our clients do have a previous diagnosis of ADHD or an attention deficit, um, anyone who is struggling to learn will benefit from this because we go back to talking about we need each of those cognitive skills 
in order to learn most efficiently. And so we all have one or two that really need to be strengthened. I mean, you can probably think of something right now that you struggle to do. Yeah, totally. And, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, if you don't use it, then you lose it, right? I was talking with my partner about antibiotic prescribing, which, you know, in pediatrics is like part of the game. Pre-COVID, kids in daycare, in childcare, in just wherever out in the world, right, with ear infections or with lung infections that needed antibiotics. And during COVID that we, I prescribed five times antibiotics in a year, like that's it. And so even the math that I normally do to the multiplication and division that I normally do to figure out dosing for pediatrics and to remember what is the dose even, you know, by weight for a kid, I lost that completely. I had to go back and look it up again in the antibiotic tables to see exactly what it was. Cause I could tell that that memory muscle was just not being used over time. And so absolutely there are things that I think in terms of my focus, as I was writing my, when I'm writing my patient notes in terms of my math skills, when I'm doing skills for patients in terms of patient dosing, um, those are things that I use every single day or in terms of just even my cognitive skills of problem solving and paying attention and being mindful in the moment when someone is sharing their story with me about what's been going on with their clinical case. And I have to kind of put those pieces together in the room and think about what should be the next steps for that patient. What do I think is going on? So absolutely. I can see that being useful even for me. Well, so, and then is this in person or is it online? Is it both? Because I know you know, a lot of kids are going to be going back to in-person school, but you know, who knows with COVID, my gosh, how the world is going to look. And so how have you guys been doing this during the pandemic and what's kind of the thought moving forward? Go ahead, Kim. Okay. So we've been doing it hybrid. Um, you can do it all in person. Um, that's how we've done it for years and years and years. Um, luckily <laughs> we had piloted how to do it over zoom two years before COVID. Um, and so we were ready to just roll right into it so we can help anyone really anywhere, um, whether you're, and we help a lot of adults too. I don't know if we've mentioned that, but about 25% of our clients maybe, um, are, you know, age 20 or older. And so we can work with adults too. Um, but, and then some, you know, maybe they will uh, come into the center once or twice and then do two sessions from home. So it's kind of a mixture. Yeah. Awesome. Which I think, you know, for working parents, it's hard to get to appointments. It's hard to, you know, that travel time, the commute, I think, thank goodness, most services are kind of moving toward at least a hybrid model, both or all online. Well, well I and the will... beauty of it is, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, I was just going to say that we are presenting research at APA in August, where we actually looked at the outcomes comparing um, delivering this program over Zoom versus delivering it in person during COVID. And we didn't find any significant differences in the outcomes. And so that was exciting to find too, that you know, not only had we kind of perfected that model ahead of time, but that it really was a viable option. To go, you know, and we found that with clinical psychology in my office as well. You know, we'd never done Zoom visits, we'd never done televisits for doctors with our patients, and we learned 
by necessity, like, wow, we actually can do a really good job. And in some cases, we can do an even better job because we can see what's happening inside the home. So um, a small silver lining of COVID. Yes. yes. <laughs> Very small. Well, Kim and Amy, please tell our listeners where they can find out more about, first of all, about Brainy Moms, because I know there's lots of information you share there and also about learning RX. So Brainy Moms is, uh, we release a new episode every Tuesday and our website is brainymoms.co and we are on every major podcasting platform and on YouTube and you can find us on all social media um, at the Brainy Moms. And then um, and Kim can tell us about learning RX. Sure. And then when it comes to learning RX, um, if you do have a child that you're a little worried about, maybe their mood has changed towards school. Maybe, you know, they no longer want to go or they complain or you can just tell, you know, when they used to be excited about school. Now it's just, oh, it's fine. It's okay. Um, or if you just have some, uh, you know, someone that you really want to, uh, enhance their, their ability to learn, um, then you can go to learningrx.com. And, uh, if you call the one eight, six, six brain zero one number, we can connect you to a center. So even if we don't have a center in your area, we can connect you to one. Um, and, and get you started, find out, you know, how, how your cognitive skills are and, uh, and why, if your child is struggling, you know, why, and that's where we start. Absolutely. I, I love it. And you guys also remember each child is an individual is different. If you're not sure exactly what the cause is of your child, not being into school, remember to also check with your individual pediatrician of your child's pediatrician. So they can also assess to see, are there other social issues that are happening, making sure that everything's good in the home, that they're getting enough sleep and exercise and, you know, uh, nutritious food, all that good stuff too. This is such an amazing resource though, for parents who do decide along with their healthcare team, okay, this is something that actually could really be a benefit for my child or for myself. So thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hey mama, if you want more of the Modern Mommy Dog podcast, make sure that you click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd also be so honored if you shared with your friends and on social media with the hashtag Modern Mommy Dog. If you share about something that inspired you or that you learned from the podcast, we'll be sure to share it on our social media as well. Thanks for listening.